Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Now we're going to continue working through Timothy for about another, for a few more weeks. And as you're turning, let me ask you a question. One country has an organ donor rate of 12%. And another country has an organ donor rate of 99.9. What do you think the difference between the two is? Is it religious belief? Is it technological advances? Is it the training of the doctors? Well, what if I told you that these two countries were Germany and Austria, which are right next to each other? What do you think accounts for the difference? I'll make it. It's very simple. One of them, when you go to get a driver's license, you have to sign up to be an organ donor. The other one, when you get a driver's license, you're automatically an organ donor. Don't you see the difference? Even for a good cause, nobody will fill out paperwork. But yet, that one small decision fundamentally shaped the culture in that country. And I'm reminded of that yesterday as I was sitting at the funeral at Billy Joe Crawford yesterday. That place was packed. Why? Because we don't realize the impact one life and one decision has on a multitude of people. And I want to take up that idea this morning. That one small decision in our church and how our church operates. That one small decision in how we change the trajectory of our life will influence countless people. So we're going to take this up in a sermon in a sentence this morning. God calls us to serve. God calls us to serve. Let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, we could read all the stars in the sky. We could follow our gut and our intuition, but no matter what we followed, we would not find you as a Savior and a Redeemer unless we had your word, and unless we had your spirit to open the eyes of our heart. So, Father, as we hear the word preached this morning, I pray you would open the eyes of all of our hearts, that we may see the need we have for our Savior and the great provision that we have in him. Father, would you do all these things in Christ's name? Amen. So let's read. We're starting at verse 8. We're going to read to verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing in themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And thus ends the reading of the word this morning. Some I ask a similar question that I asked last week. Last week I asked, what is an elder? Well, this week I'm going to ask, what is a deacon? Now, if you grew up in a Baptist background like me, deacon in a Baptist setting, and deacon the way Paul uses the words a little bit different. The word deacon means servant. And as you look to Acts 6, what you find is, The apostles appoint seven deacons for service, for waiting on tables, for caring for the widows within the community. Now, this, the fact that we have the office of an elder and a deacon in 1 Timothy 3 should tell us something about the structure of our church. Think about the companies you've worked for or the government we have. The highest offices in the land tell you something about that country. Look at America. We have a Congress with senators and representatives whom we elect in. China has dictatorial rule. And just by looking at those offices, it tells me that America values human rights and cooperation where China does not. So our offices of elder and deacon tell us something about the structure of our church. That our church is centered around the ministry of the word and the ministry of service. And it's this idea of service that I want to take a look at today. God calls us as a church to serve. He calls us to have officers who are servants. And he calls us as Christians to serve. So I want to look at two dynamics of this this morning. Let's look at the requirements of service and the rewards of service. We're going to look at the requirements of service and the rewards of service. Y'all listen to what Paul says real quick. He says, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, Not greedy for dishonest gain, but they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, Paul has a play on words here in Greek that we miss in English. What Paul is trying to say is, you can't hold on to the things of the world, your passion, your desires for selfish gain, but you must hold on to the mystery of the faith. Now, don't you know Whatever you hold on to the tightest is what has control of your life. I think of Linus from Charlie Brown. You can take that man's cute girlfriend. You can take his dignity. You can take everything from him. But don't you dare take that man's blanket. That blanket has a grip on his life. And whatever is gripping our lives is what is going to control us. So the first requirement in service is that we do not hold on to the things of this world. Have y'all ever seen a white picket fence? You know what most people do with a white picket fence? They only paint one side. And it looks great from the road, but it's rottening out on the other side. 
And that's what Paul is talking about right here. The danger is becoming deacons or being servants in the church and yet holding on to the things of this world. We may look good, but we're rotten on the inside. And what happens is that people in that condition are only looking for a few things. Goodies, gains, and gossip. Can you imagine how destructive these would be for a church? I'll recall the story of four pastors who met together and they were unloading their burdens and their cares on one another. And one preacher said, Guys, I watch movies. I probably shouldn't. And the second one said, Oh, well, sometimes I go down to the casino and I gamble. And the third one said, Sometimes I smoke cigars and cigarettes. But the fourth one said, well, I got the sin of gossip and I can't wait to leave this place. <laughs> but you see the problem, don't you? Because he was holding onto the things of this world, he just destroyed his reputation with those three other pastors. He destroyed his inability to serve. And he destroyed their reputation. If these are qualities in us, we may convince ourselves that we are serving the Christ. But what happens is we're only serving ourselves. If we are called to serve, we must not hold on to the things of this world. So instead of holding on to the world, we are required to hold on to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. There's a Dutch theologian named Herman Bovink. You know what I love about Herman Bovink? He has written like four or 5,000 pages on Christian theology. But do you know what he says? Mystery is the heartbeat of Christianity. Mystery. And that's what Paul uses here, the word mystery. See, often we view Christianity like this. When I die... I'm going to get to heaven, and God's going to want to see my ACT score, my last five years of tax returns, and then I'm going to have to take a timed exam, and if I pass, I'll get a call back and he'll let me in. But that's not how the Christian life works. Paul says that we hold on to the mystery of faith. I was going to pick on someone this morning, but I'll just pick on myself. What do you think, how do you think I would respond if, if I told Zoe to do something and she walked up to me and she said, Dad, until you sign up to 23andMe.com and prove to me you're my daddy, I'm not going to do what you say. Has any of your children ever did that? Has any of your children said, I need to see a signed birth certificate or I do not believe you're my daddy? Not a single one of us have done that, have we? Why? Because our relationships are not built on a bare knowledge of facts. Our relationships are built on a deep personal trust. And this is what we see in the gospel. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 1.9. He says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, how has he done this? He has set it forth plainly. In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a correct ABC answer. Jesus Christ is not a document. Jesus Christ is a person. 
I know plenty of men with lots of knowledge and no trust in Jesus Christ. God gave us a person. And look at the life of this person. He, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us to reveal to us the mysteries of God. And look at his life. He would heal the sick. He would serve. He would feed the hungry. He would serve. He would sit with the oppressed and the downcast. He would serve. He would bend down and wash the feet of the disciples. Even the feet of Judas. He would serve. And the one whom we are called to serve has first come to serve us through the cross. That he came for us. The moochers, the bums, the white picket fences, the greedy, those who loved gossip and dishonest gain. I had a man come in the bookstore this week. He was going to New Orleans. He, he ministers at Mardi Gras. And I said, well, please, sir, tell me, how did you, how'd you get involved in this? He said, well, I'll be very honest. I, looked, I was talking to someone one day, and I said, well, you, let me tell you something, buddy. I don't talk to drunks. And he said, just like that, God told me, well, I talked to you when you were drunk. That the great God in heaven has come down to serve us. That Philippians 2 says that he was found in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we may be reconciled to God, so that we could serve him with a clear conscience. When we begin to ponder the mystery of the faith, if it's just a, a tip of the hat, if it's just a nod, if it's one of those waves in Kroger where you don't want to speak, but you just turn down the next aisle, yeah, you acknowledge he's there. But that's really a slap on the face when you consider how much Jesus has served us. Holding the mystery of the faith is not a tip of the hat. It is a deep personal trust in Jesus Christ. This is the requirement of service. Can we trust him and serve him with a clearer conscience this morning? So this beckons a question as we transition to our second point. There are requirements for service. But I love our God. Not only does he give requirements, but he gives rewards. It's a testament to how gracious our God really is. How does God reward us for our service. Well, we see this in the last verse. Paul says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. One of the rewards is a good standing. These are rewards that apply particularly to deacons but they apply generally to every believer. And the first reward is a good standing. I love when I read Luke 2.25 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and with favor with God and man. 
that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human, and he grew in, in favor and stature and standing. And this should be a model for us. Good standing is not a goal in itself, but being, gaining a good standing allows us to serve as a model for others. So I make a pitch to the future deacon in this room. Your good standing will allow you to be a model for us, a model of dignity, of godliness, and of service that you one day will be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Every time I read that verse in 1 Corinthians, it makes me shudder. Because what human being is able to say that? But with Christ working through us, we can. By holding on to the mystery of the faith. If you remember anything, I pray you remember that growth in the Christian life is imperceptible. I think of this tree in the backyard. I have pictures that Miss Karen gave me from like the 80s, and that tree looked like a twig. And I don't believe any of us ever walked out the back of the church and said, Man, whew, y'all see them five new leaves on that tree? None of us said that, did we? Why? Because growth is imperceptible. You only notice the growth when you hadn't seen it in many years, and you come back and you say, man, look how that tree has grown. In the same way, as we take in Christ and we put out Christ, we, continue, we will grow to provide shade and a model for all those around us that we will gain a good standing. That is our reward. But the second reward is like it. Not only will we gain a good standing... But be, we will be rewarded with assurance. We'll be rewarded with assurance in the faith. Paul moves from holding a mystery to having a great confidence in the mystery. And I refer to this in John 7. And frequently, I think MJ and Monty have heard me say this, but I want you to remember, assurance is a three-legged stool. You know what's important about a three-legged stool? If one of the legs is broke and you sit on it, your face is going to be broke when you get done. It has three, three legs. The first leg is the promise of God. That we have the promise that whosoever believeth in him shall be saved. That's a firm promise. One leg. We have the Spirit testifying with our spirits that we are sons of God. That we can cry out, Abba, Father, from Romans 8. That's a sturdy promise. That's two legs. The third leg is what Paul calls the obedience of assurance. That if Jesus Christ saves us to be fruitful, as, Paul, as John says in John 16, that those who abide in him will bear fruit. Well, guess what? If you have fruit in your life, if you are serving the Lord and seeing his bounty, that will give you a greater assurance that God is working in our life. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and I think he really gets to the point. High degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. I'm going to say it again. High degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. What's he saying? 
as we hold on to the mystery of the faith, it gives rise to service and obedience in our life. And as we serve Christ and follow Him, we get an ever-increasing view of Christ that we learn more and more about Him. It's almost like if you take a coal out from the fire and you sit it by yourself, what happens? It grows cold. But as we serve and follow Christ, He ignites that flame within us and confirms our faith. Assurance is both bred and fed by faith. So I want us to take this and ask the most important question today. What does any of this matter? What does any of this matter? We live in a world where if someone comes to your house and does your yard, if they serve you, that's a symbol of, of accomplishment. You're somebody because you're being served, you know. If you can have people who come to your house and cook and clean and do everything, that's a status symbol. You are being served. But in our text, we are called to be the ones who serve. What does that matter to us? Well, I'm going to ask three questions. Where do we receive our value? Where do we receive our value? So when I worked at Lowe's, we always ran a theft course every year. Did you know that 40% of all retail theft happens by those who work in the store? Why? Is it because they know the ins and outs? It's not why. Most of them justify it by saying this. They don't pay me enough. They don't value me enough. So I'm going to make that value up myself. But do you see what they're saying? They don't feel valued. And it doesn't matter if you're working or retired, married or single, coming out of the womb or stepping in the tomb. Each one of us in this room wants to feel valued. And what happens is that we serve people to fulfill that longing in our heart. That we want to feel valuable, needed, even irreplaceable. But at that point, we're no longer serving others. That we can be feeding the poor, but if it's for our glory, we're serving ourselves. I'm reminded of a man, Richard Sykes, who told me that cemeteries are full of irreplaceable men. That if we give our lives to serving others, that we will feel important. We will become enslaved by their approval. At that point, it's not service. It's slavery. Instead, we must be convinced of our reconciliation with God and of the finished work of Christ. Before we ever lifted a finger, our Heavenly Father loved us. And He died for us when we were serving ourselves. We aren't serving so that God will love us. But God loves us, so we serve Him. Because we are valued by Him. A truly Christian life lived in the service of God is impossible unless we're convinced of this love. The works we do in this life are not great because of how hard they are. But we can do the smallest, most seemingly unimportant work. But it is loaded with value because our Heavenly Father 
values us. He calls us to serve because he values us. Also, not only do we, where do we receive our value, but where do we receive our strength? Where do we receive our strength? I read a story about a, a wealthy man who had a famous art collection. And he had a small boy who was about six or seven, and the boy died. And shortly after, the man died from a broken heart. Well, the man had all of his artwork auctioned off, but there was one stipulation. A old painting of the boy was to be auctioned off first. And so everybody flocked in to come to his house to this auction. And the first picture that went up was the boy. Nobody cared about that man's boy. They wanted the other stuff. Well, finally, one of their slaves walked up and asked to buy a picture of the boy for 75 cents. And not a soul in the room bid against him. The old slave won the picture. And after that, the auction ended. For the man's will said, anyone who loves the son enough to buy his picture gets everything else. And that's the picture of our life. That we love Christ. We go to Christ and then we get everything else. We don't get everything else first. We get Christ. When we hold on to the mystery of the faith, it's not merely something in our head, but it's a deep personal trust in Christ. The more we have of Him, the more we will find that we have everything we need. And I cannot stress how important this is. We will suffer. If you serve someone else, you'll suffer. Have you ever served someone who absolutely drove you wild, who called and texted you, who was ungrateful, who exhausted your resources? I have. And guess what? You suffer. Your fatigue will convince you that you are unable to serve, that you are not fit to serve. But it's much like the small boy who was carrying his dad's suitcase up the stairs. He could only make it halfway because it was so heavy. The dad didn't look from the top of the stairs and say, Come on, boy, you can do it. When you get up here, I'll give you some more strength. That's not what the, boy, the dad did. The dad walked down and scooped up boy in bag and carried him the rest of the way. That's the strength I need. I don't need Jesus in heaven cheering me on. I need Jesus serving with me right now. And when we hold on to the mystery of the faith, when we serve others and we suffer lack, Jesus Christ is serving in and through us. Do we trust that Christ will supply us? Finally, the most important question, are we serving one another? I once heard a man pray. He said, here I am, Lord. Use me in an advisory capacity. And many of us pray that prayer. We want to assist a little, but we don't want to get our hands dirty. I let MJ read something by Archibald Alexander, and he says this. 
We often pass our days in pain, reflecting on the duties admitted, the time wasted, and the opportunities squandered. And we ask God, am I beyond usefulness? But we forget that Christ has equipped us right here and right now. Just say, for example, you sold stoves for a living. I've done that before. And I can remember there was a stove coming out, and it was the best stove on the market. It would knock the wife's socks off, and it would make the husband's belt size grow two times. It was a great stove. Do you think I said, ma'am, how about you come back in two years, and we'll have the perfect stove? Of course not. I sold her the stove I had there in the store. You see, we keep thinking, well, God will gift me with the ability to serve later. But God has gifted us with the ability to serve now. God did not get all the misfit broken toys from, from, Hine, from southeastern Hines County and cobble us together to form this church. But just as you can't pick your family, you can't pick your church family either. God has sovereignly placed us together. And each and every one of us in this room, God has given us a gift to serve one another. They're valuable. He strengthens them. And He calls us to use them, no matter how great or small. There's a painting in Paris where three men walk into a house. One angel is washing dishes. A second angel is tending the meat. A third angel is stoking the fire. A fourth angel is cutting the vegetables. And the meaning of the picture is this. If you serve Jesus Christ, no work is common. That if you are serving Jesus Christ, your work is valuable. Today, my friends, our service has value in God's sight. It doesn't matter if we're fixing a leaky roof or we're a shoulder for a leaky eye. If we can travel the, the hills and galleyways of Hines County or if we are, we're confined to our house and can only pray, God has called us to serve one another. Jesus Christ himself said, He who gives a cup of water in my name will by no means lose his reward. It is Christ who works in us and through us and rewards us. So in closing, let me, I want to reflect on the words of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. Likewise, the shape of our church, elders and deacons, the culture we have here will shape us. So I want to use, I don't do this often, but I'll, I have an illustration I saw this from John MacArthur, so I want to give credit, but it's, it gets the point across. How would you describe the ministry of this church and each of your ministries using this cup? I want you to think about it for a minute. How would you describe your ministry, your service, using this cup? Now, this was at a conference, and any other pastors gave many answers. Some of them said, well, my ministry is a cup where I bring stuff to people. Or God fills my cup and they get whatever flows. There's many ways. But John MacArthur had the best way. He punched out 
He punched out the bottom of the cup. And he peered through it. He said, I do not want to be a cup. I want to be a channel that God can use me to affect everyone else around me. One life, one decision, one office in a church can have a tremendous influence on countless lives. As we close, are you a cup or are you a channel? Benjamin Morgan Palmer said, it's a luxury to live when your life is heroic. Are we a cup? Or are we a channel? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us ten talents, five talents, and some of us one talent. But Father, they are talents and gifts that you have given us that we may glorify you and serve one another. Father, I pray you would forgive us for the times when we serve selfishly. When our service is just about what we can get. I pray you would forgive us when we don't serve. When our selfishness doesn't even make it out the door, but we stay home and cease to care about the ones you have placed in our life. But Father, I pray you would make us not a cup that hoards your blessings, but a channel that you may work through that your gospel would be praised here in this family and in this community. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.